0: As a high school youth, I got to participate in some training with professional, real professional journalists. Uh, Oklahoma Publishing Company paid for the whole thing. I absorbed some really good lasting lessons there. One of the main things they hammered in my head, I've never forgotten, is make the lead statement clear. Make the, make the purpose statement clear. Here's how one of, the, uh, <clears throat> one of the pros relates to the idea. Dr. Fred Beard puts it this way. Have you ever read a piece and asked yourself, when is the writer going to get to the point? Your purpose should be so clear, no one can be left in doubt. When the lead idea is defined well, you can make sure all that follows supports your aims, and no one ends up wondering what point you were trying to get across, close quote. I once experienced the exact opposite of that, where the, where the lead statement is really clear. I was in a seminar class in this professor's library. We met in Dr. James Vardaman's library. There were only nine students in that class. Vardaman was a genius. Uh, a brilliant instructor and he spoke with a very distinctive voice okay I do a pretty good James Vardaman and this is I'm not exaggerating how he spoke okay one day this really arrogant student got up to make his presentation in this seminar class and the guy was droning on and on and on and saying nothing I mean, he was saying, absolutely not. There was no clear point. We were all confused, and quite frankly, many of us were starting to fall asleep when all of a sudden, Dr. Vardaman stood up, interrupted, and he said, excuse me, excuse me, is anyone listening to this fool up here? And we all said, no, no. And so he said, would you sit down? Thank you. And we applauded. It was my all-time favorite moment in a class ever. It was fantastic. Making the lead clear keeps the audience engaged and prevents that kind of foolishness. And making the purpose statement clear is something the Apostle John did exceptionally well. Guided by the Holy Spirit, John is in fact one of the best journalists ever to pick up a pen. And I'll I'll prove it to you. Open your Bible to Revelation. It's the last book in your Bible. Should be fairly easy to find, even in your old outdated Bible that you have. And, uh... (coughs) Let's get to know John and his situation. Let's read Revelation chapter one, verse nine. I, John, your brother and partner in the affliction, kingdom, and endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. As we say in the notes there in your worship guide, you got a worship guide when you came in. Open it up in the notes. You'll see John begins by describing that he is the author, like like any good journalism byline. Verse nine begins by introducing to us the author. John was likely, uh, let me tell you just a little bit about, John, you, you like that, the red-headed yellow John, yeah. Um, John was likely a very young teen when he left his father's business uh, along with his brother James and went and and followed Jesus as one of the Lord's selected disciples. John was very close to Jesus. In fact, he was part of the inner circle with James, his brother James, and with Peter. Uh, in fact, they even were there at the transfiguration when When the Lord Jesus was seen in who he really is in all his glory as the God-man. After Jesus' death and resurrection, John and Peter was with him. They were questioned by the Sanhedrin. They were actually beaten. They were briefly jailed, and you can read about it in Acts chapter 3. John is bold all the way through. He, He isn't giving an inch. He's respectful, but he is strong that he must tell the truth, and tell the truth he did. He traveled, and he pastored, especially in a huge city called Ephesus, and he taught for 50 more years after that moment in front of the Sanhedrin. He wrote a gospel account, the Gospel of John. He wrote a number of letters to churches. Near the end of his life, he penned this book, the very last book in our Bible. Dr. Walvoord, uh summarizes the scholarly ideas about John as the author. Look what Walvard says. From the first century to the present, Orthodox Christians have almost unanimously agreed that he, the author of this book, is the Apostle John. Practically all scholars today who accept the divine inspiration of the book of Revelation also, accept John the Apostle as its author. Now, look at how John describes himself to these Christians whom he knows is going to read this scroll Your brother and partner in the affliction, kingdom, and endurance that are in Jesus. That is amazingly cool. Here's John. Th- think, think about this. This is one of the most famous people in human history. He is a beloved leader, and he describes himself as what? Your brother. I'm your brother. Remember that powerful Dr. James Vardaman, Dr. Vardaman under whom I studied? He became so famous that there is now a chair endowed in his name, which by the way is a remarkable accomplishment that very, very, very tiny percentage of humans ever realize. He called me one time, called me up. It was the end of a semester, in fact it was the spring semester, I was heading home uh, to go home and start lifeguarding, and the voice on the phone said, Wang, this is Jim. Before you leave town, can you swing by my office? uh, Something I'd like to discuss. And I said, Jim? Jim who? And he said, James Vardaman, you ninny, your brother in Christ and sometime teacher. (laughs) Isn't that awesome? It, It was legit, too. It was the man himself. I went by thinking it might be a prank. No, it was him waiting on me. He called me. And he referred to himself as what? It's, I'm your brother. I'm just your brother. That's awesome. That is a little bit of how Revelation chapter 1 is supposed to strike us. John is an apostle. His teaching and writing had an impact that that a modern professor could only imagine. And yet John introduces himself as what? Just who he is. I'm your brother. Just your brother, right? Moreover, John is a partner to other Christians. This may be my favorite descriptor of Christians. We are partners. Or for you long-term Texans, we're partners, right? Right? And, of course, that makes you ask in your uh, Sam Elliott imitation, "And in what do we share a partnership, right? Great question. We are partners, look at your text, in Jesus. Of course, that makes you continue to question as Sam Elliott, but just what does that partnership get us, right? Thank you for asking. Three things. Look at them in your text. Affliction, kingdom, and endurance. Each of these is vitally important to note. Look. Let me just say this. If you leave out any one of these, you are setting your partners up for serious problems. Serious problems. For example, if you depict the Christian life as all sunshine and roses, not only are you lying, but you're setting people up for a very big shock when they step in the inevitable fertilizer, the affliction of poop that makes the roses grow, right? Roses don't grow without fertilizer. The Christian life, we are promised, has plenty of it. Or, Leave out the kingdom part. You, you leave out the millennial kingdom, and you know what happens? Prideful humans will begin to think that we need to make the world perfect without him, without him on the throne. This is disastrous thinking. It is disillusioning nonsense. I, I am convinced that this, leaving out the kingdom in our communication with Christians, it's, it's the main reason behind young adults leaving churches. Now, our church actually has a fairly large net growth in young adults, but but liberal churches do not. Liberal churches are seeing young adults bleed like crazy. And the reason I think is very simple. These kids were told that they could and should save the world, they weren't directed to Jesus' kingdom. It wasn't a partnership with God. No, no, no. It was their own efforts alone were supposed to save the world. When that fails, and it inevitably does, because last time I checked, you're not God. When that fails, what do they do? Well, they walk away from the people who told them the lie that they were in charge. Finally, John describes himself as our partner in Christian endurance. You see that? Affliction, kingdom, endurance. All three are important. Endurance is important. We never give up, never surrender, right? Not because of ourselves, but because of who we are in Jesus. He provides the endurance for people who will rely on him. 150 years ago, uh, Elisha Hoffman and Anthony Showalter produced a really great summary of this. They wrote a song about endurance. They were trying to capture that idea of endurance. They called it Leaning on the Everlasting Arms. Any of you know that old song, you know Leaning on the Everlasting Arms? The the tune is very out of date, but the words are so, so good that we're gonna sing it. We're gonna sing it right now, a cappella, and we're gonna do it kind of double time because it'll cover how poorly we sing and how the tune is out of date. All right, so you ready? one two three what have i to dread what have i to fear leaning on the everlasting arms good i have blessed peace with my lord so near. leaning on the everlasting arms lean did you see this kid i did leaning safe and secure from all alarms leaning leaning, leaning on the everlasting arms. Well done. That is where John and all of us who are his partners, that's where we get endurance. It's not from us. It's from leaning on the arms of Jesus. Amen? Alright. John is author, brother, partner in affliction, kingdom, and endurance. Now like a good journalist, he moves from who he is to where he is. He is exiled on Patmos. Read the last part of 9. On the island of Patmos, Uh, called Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. Patmos is a big rock. It's off the coast, uh, southwest coast of Asia Minor, what we today call Turkey. John's here. He's on Patmos. It's just south. If you ever do one of those Mediterranean cruises, uh, Athens is over here. Um, It's just south of Samos, about 80 miles uh, southwest of Ephesus. And of course, him being on Patmos elicits a question. Why in the world would John go to a place like that? Great question. It wasn't willingly, okay? Uh, Here's how my old teacher, Bill Lawrence, summarized it. This is so well said. Really good writing here. Listen to Bill. It's from an article called The Island Wilderness. He says, uh, he must have been too hot to touch. That elder pastor of Ephesus named John or the Roman authorities probably would have taken him in much sooner than they did. Maybe they were concerned that since he was so beloved, there would have been a strong reaction in Ephesus, the number two city in the Roman Empire, if they took him into custody. Ephesus was a place where they did not want any more unrest. Whatever their reasoning, by the time they exiled him, he was old. His wilderness was a small, rugged, rocky island just off the coast of modern-day Turkey called Patmos. The Romans used Patmos as a penal colony where they warehoused their political prisoners. Domitian, by the way, every time I say his name, you have to boo. Okay, very bad man. Domitian. Thank you. The Roman emperor at the time. What is with you guys? All the old people booed, and all you high school kids like, boo. You did? Okay, all right. You're off the hook there. All right, Domitian. Thank you. The Roman emperor at the time sentenced John to exile, perhaps because John rejected emperor worship, or possibly merely because he was a Christian leader. Let me insert a note of mine here. Um, This is the same emperor, Domitian. Yeah, he beheaded his own cousin, Clemens, simply because he was a church leader in Rome. This is a a bad dude. Okay, now back to Bill. Bill says, maybe the authorities thought the apostle would die on Patmos or at least change his ways after such difficult treatment, but he outlived the emperor, and he was released from the island following Domitian's death. (laughs) A greater worshiper of Jesus than ever. Now listen, this is so well said. Look, the kingdom of Rome exiled John. But he was part of a different kingdom, one from which he could never be exiled and which was far greater than Rome. Amen. So, sometime in the early 90s A.D., over 50 years after Jesus' ascension, John was sent to live on the lovely but isolated rock called Patmos. By the way, this kind of exile was, was still being practiced Uh, We know at least 100 years later, 197 AD, uh, Tertullian, he was uh, a Christian leader, he wrote a letter about how he was raising money to send to the Christians who, because of their faith, because they held to the scriptures, they were exiled to the islands, he said. So this was still being done sometime later. All right, so that's who John is, that's where he is, why he's there, and roughly when, about 90, 80, pretty nice start to his journalism, right? All right, now, on the right side of your notes, we'll see that he adds the what. Read verses 10 through 18. Let's see what John saw and heard. Verse 10. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard a loud voice behind me like a trumpet saying, Write on a scroll what you see and send it to the seven churches, Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. Then I turned to see whose voice it was that spoke to me. When I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands, and among the lampstands was one like the Son of Man. Dressed in a robe and with a golden sash wrapped around his chest. The hair of his head was white as wool, white as snow. And his eyes like a fiery flame. His feet were like fine bronze as it's fired in a furnace. And his voice was like the sound of cascading waters. He had seven stars in his right hand. And a sharp double-edged sword came from his mouth. And his face was shining like the sun at full strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet like a dead man. Okay, stop right there for just a second. This is somebody who was so close to Jesus that he called himself the disciple whom Jesus loved, right? At, the, at, the, at the, uh, what we call the Last Supper, he's the one who is at Jesus' immediate left, leaning on him. By the way, that wasn't homoerotic or anything, that was how everybody ate at that time in a triclinium, around everybody lean to, to, the, to the left, sorry, and you ate with your right hand. So he's leaning on Jesus just to his right. He knows Jesus. He was at the Transfiguration and saw him, right? And now he sees him again, transfigured again 50 something years later. And I love the combination in John. He is Jesus' friend. But he also knows that his friend is God. Do you see the cool combination here? He understood friendship and worship. That's what's meant by the word awe. He falls down like a dead man in front of his friend because his friend happens to be God the son. Isn't that awesome? Okay, back to the text, sorry. That was free. Okay, now, back to this. When I saw him, I fell at his feet like a dead man. He laid his right hand on me and said, Don't be afraid. I am the first and the last, and the living one. I was dead, but look, I'm alive forever and ever, and I hold the keys of death and Hades. Our purpose in this series is to learn from these seven churches that Jesus mentioned. So. Even though we could spend a lifetime on this depiction of Jesus, we're going to cover it quickly today. The imagery here draws very heavily on the Old Testament. Here's what you need to know. The prophet Daniel, around 500 B.C., he saw a, he saw a vision of the Messiah, the Messiah who would reign. And it, he called him, his best description of him, he said, and I quote, "...one like the Son of Man." And what he obviously meant by that was a title for deity. So for the next 500 years, 600 years, that became used as a title for for reigning deity. So when he says one like a son of man, to us it sounds like his humanity It's actually not. It's a statement of deity. The lampstands represent a beautiful Old Testament idea. God uses this all the time. God uses light to lead people. In, in, In the Exodus, what did God use to lead the Israelites when they were traveling at night? It was a pillar of what? Fire, right? In the tabernacle and then in the temple, what had to be kept burning? 24 hours a day, seven days a week, what had to be kept burning? Light, because that represented how you were led to God. What does Jesus call everybody who believes in him, all the Christians? He says, you are the light of the world. So light is this awesome idea. Therefore, it makes sense. Each of these lampstands represents the seven churches of Asia that are selected for the addresses to come. Now, more on that in a moment. First, I want us to think just a little bit more about this incredible depiction of Jesus. I just finished a fantastic book about one of the great leaders in American history, General Daniel Morgan. I want you to listen to how this book begins. It's a really well-written book. I recommend it very highly. It was the darkness before dawn on January 17, 1781 at a crossroads. We ought to have Sam Elliott read this. At a crossroads, at a crossroads in the back country of South Carolina, a savannah where cattle were overnighted on their amble to the coast. It was called, like other such pastures throughout the Carolinas, a Cowpens. soon would acquire an honorific capital C. A mist blanketed the undulated countryside. Joining the mist was the smoke of campfires for almost 2,000 men camped at the northern end of the Cowpens, All night, the old wagoner meandered between the groups of men huddled around their flames, chatting, joking, telling them exactly what he expected of them. Some later claimed he lifted his shirt to show them his back. The white-scarred wreckage left behind by 499 lashes. Yes, he did. He was supposed to get 500, but the, uh, the drummer boy who was keeping count lost count, and he was always very proud of the fact that he knew that they owed him one more. Um, well laid on by the British. Uh, Louis Zambone continues, The man who called himself the old wagoner was Brigadier General Daniel Morgan, and he was a tactical genius. He knew how to lead his men, what to ask them to do, and how to get them to do it. Now, I read that, and it fascinated me how much that account resembles Jesus in Revelation chapter 1. Daniel Morgan, by the way, Daniel Morgan is a brother of ours in Christ, and he would probably be horrified that I'm making this comparison, but I still think it's worth seeing. I don't know if you know this, but an amazing victory was won at Calpins. Greatly, By the way, you probably... You probably would not be the United States of America right now if it weren't for Cowpens. is a critically important victory. And it was won greatly because that leader prepared his people by walking among their fires and lovingly giving them all night his commands. That leader had been scarred by the enemy, right? But here he is now. He's healed, he's triumphant. That is similar to what John saw and heard. Jesus is walking among the seven lamps that are the churches, and Jesus expects to lead his churches to victory just as Morgan did at Cowpens. All God's people said, amen. Amen. Unlike General Morgan, Jesus is utterly glorified. He glows with Shekinah glory as God the Son. His eyes and feet and hair are so bright, John struggles to describe them. And And I love this part. John has no idea what to make of some golden cloth that runs across Jesus' chest. A friend of mine... A friend of mine thinks that Jesus has an honorary doctorate and that, the, and that the hood they put on you, which connects across your chest, his is from some university that's gold. So that's why John didn't know what to make of it. Anyway, the whole picture is overwhelming, and his voice. You think Sam Elliott has golden pipes. Jesus' voice thunders like a waterfall. John sees Jesus. He sees who he is. He sees where he is. He sees what he's doing. Now, I want you to look. Look at your text. Everything Jesus does here is an action reserved only for God. This is God the Son. Look, look, at, look, he's the judge, right? He's the awesome judge. That's God's face. He is the word giver. He says, write these letters. And then the sword coming out of his mouth, that represents God's word. He, he is the word. He doesn't promote fear. Do you notice that? Do, do you remember this in the Old Testament? Every time in the Old Testament, God engages with someone who's one of his people, what does he say to them every time? Be not afraid. Don't be afraid, Right? Jesus is fully God. That's why he says, don't be afraid. He controls heaven. He controls the angels. That's the the stars, represents heaven and the angels. He controls death. He even holds control over hell. And if you glance up to the introduction of the book, the very beginning of the book, John uses even more descriptive titles. This is from Jesus' mouth. Go to verse 8, Revelation chapter 1, verse 8. Jesus says, I am the Alpha and the Omega. What are those? Anybody know what those are? They're from what alphabet? Greek alphabet, the very first letter, the very last letter. It was, it was a euphemism for I am from beyond the beginning, I'm the beginning, and I am from beyond the end, I'm the end. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, the one who is, who was, and who is to come, the Almighty. Amen? Now, he's got his five W's covered. John the journalist. Who, where, why, when, what? And our favorite journalist, John, then with all that done, he lays out his very clear lead. Look at verse 19 to see John's lead, his purpose statement. Revelation 1:19. Therefore, write what you have seen, what is, and what will take place after this. Isn't that great? It's really clear. Jesus says, here's your purpose in Revelation. To write what you have seen, what is, and what is coming after. You may have thought I was being cute calling John a great journalist, but this is a particular skill of his. He really writes brilliant purpose statements. For example, in his gospel in his gospel, John gives another really clear purpose statement. Look, John chapter 20, verse 30 Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples that are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God and that by believing you may have life in his name. Very clear, isn't it? Men and women, boys and girls, what is the purpose statement of the gospel of John? Read it with me. You take the underlying text. These are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in His name. Isn't that great? Okay. So, go back to John's revelation, and let's make sure we have John's lead straight in our minds. This is the lead thought of revelation. Revelation. Therefore, write what you've seen, what is, and what will take place after this or after these things. What you have seen. That's the first big idea. What has John seen? What has he seen? Jesus. He's seen God the Son, the Lord God, his friend. He's asked to relate the majesty, and and yet not just majesty, it's the majesty and the kind engagement of Jesus who walks among his churches like the old wagoner, This this is something that earlier Christians tried to capture in this golden mosaic, one of the most famous mosaics ever made, and it is made of solid gold. Uh, It's at the Hagia Sophia in uh, Constantinople, uh, in Istanbul. And that's the subject of chapter 1 of Revelation. It's Jesus. This is what he's seen. What's the second part of Jesus' command that encapsulates John's purpose in writing? To tell what is. What is are the seven churches that Jesus chose to address. Now, there's other churches, of course. By 90 AD, there are many, many churches, but Jesus addresses this bunch, and that's what our series is all about. What is is detailed in Revelation chapters 2 through 3, which is the portion we're going to learn over the next few days. Now, you're surely asking your head, now, does that mean that what Jesus writes to these churches was only for them, right? Not hardly. Let me share with you a comment. This is from my personal study as I was preparing all this. Here's something I wrote in my notes. The letters to each church apply to all fellowships of all place and all time, telling us how to build victoriously. Writing in the late third century, Victorinus, wonderful name, Victorinus remarks that Jesus addresses, and quote here from his commentary, the seven churches to whom he wrote epistles. Not that they are themselves the only or even the principal churches, but what he says to one, he says to whom, everybody? All. All right, so let's learn more about what is about these churches. Verse 20, look at verse 20. The mystery of the seven stars you saw on my right hand and of the seven golden lampstands is this. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. The churches are what is. Now, these churches are chosen for reasons that are beyond our ken. yet they each were suffering some level of persecution arising from the emperor Domitian, in Rome. As a result, here's what it seems like was happening. Some of these churches were attempting to better fit in with imperial society. Look, we're just like you. Don't, don't persecute us. While others were retreating and hiding away and, and hiding their confession. Jesus we're going to see deals with both problems. Uh, Robert Saucy recaps it really really well in his, his wonderful book, The Church and God's Program. He says, History reveals the church can fail in its ministry to the world in one of two ways. It may attempt to control the world through deliberately entering secular forms, or it may withdraw to individualistic monastic piety. Witness can only be effective as the church permeates the world, not in conformity, but in holy engagement, close quote. Now, I here need to deal with a popular and recurring idea, and the idea is this, it's wrong. I, I'm convinced it's wrong, but it is very popular, and that is that each of these churches represents a different period of church history. The first appearance of this idea is in the mid-fourth century, and it has popped up fairly regularly ever since, and it runs something like this. Uh, the first era, the first church that's addressed in chapter two of Revelation is Ephesus. So the Ephesus era, three thirty-three AD to 100 AD, that's the apostolic era, when the apostles were alive and they were given the scripture. Smyrna is mentioned second, so that's not just about the church in Smyrna, no, no, that's about an era that goes to about 313, and that's when the church was persecuted under the Romans. Then we have the Pergamum era when the church became entitled, 313 to 538 or so, and the church did indeed become entitled, became the Roman church at that point, and you had titles like bishops and things like that put in. Then you have Thyatira era up till the Reformation, and that's the pagan era is when the church pretty much acted the churches acted just like the pagan world around them you had to earn your way to heaven that's paganism Sardis is the dead church which was fighting against there were some who were persevering the reformation but there were others fighting against Philadelphia that's a wonderful letter you'll love that one in chapter three and that must be the missional era of the 19th century because there were so many wonderful missionaries sent out and then our era is Laodicea the last letter where Jesus has no encouragement for them because we're so lukewarm (sighs) all right In this week's devotion, I I don't have time. Let me explain. No, take too long. Let me sum up. In this week's Redeemed Community Devotion, the, the devotional newsletter that goes out every week, I will explain in depth why I think this is very misguided. For now, let me just summarize it this way. You can make any period of history appear exactly the way you wish. You can make any period of history appear as noble or as nasty as you desire. It just depends on what data you select, right? This is bad history. For example, most of who teach Revelation this way, they call Smyrna the persecuted church, right? They say, oh, that second era, that's Smyrna, church was persecuted. Do you know that in the last 100 years, there have been more Christians martyred for their faith around the world? Than in all of the other centuries of the world combined. Why would Smyrna be the persecuted church? Why wouldn't that be now? Do you see this? Look, these churches all existed on a circuit that followed two main Roman roads. They were intended, like all letters in the New Testament, they tend to be circular letters. They were intended to be passed around. They're not representing eras of church history. They're representing churches on a route through Asia. I could go on and on, but you get the point. I want you to understand, and please don't throw rocks at our wonderful brethren who teach otherwise, but these are not mystical period placeholders. These are real churches that existed then. They are what is, and they had struggles and blessings that relate directly to what you and I deal with now. The letters that Jesus tells John to pen are fascinating. Look at this. Like all classical letters, all classical letters uh, followed a a loosely standard Greco-Roman formula. You had an introduction of the speaker. Then you had encouragement, usually. Then you had exhortation. This is what you need to do. Followed by a future. There's always a mention of when we're going to meet again. And then a blessing at the end. Now, we're going to cover all of that in depth as we go along. But there's one thing that jumps out right now and I need to mention. Every exhortation in Revelation 2 through 3 contains the same command from Jesus. Listen. Each time he says, listen to what the Spirit says to the churches. Remember, journalism developed out of brilliant writing like John's. So along with the five W's that we've already read, John includes the great journalistic H. What's the H in journalism? How, all right? So this is how victory comes. This is how we learn from what is. This is how we outlast empires we listen. How'd your mom get your attention when you were in trouble as a kid? Did anybody's parents say their, did she say your full name? Raise your hand if you had that. Do you know if an older woman says, Michael Wayne Broderick to this day, I break out in a sweat? (laughs) I do. I I feel like this is happening all over again. That's fine for parenting. But what Jesus is doing is really intriguing. His attention getter isn't quite like that. Jesus says to each church, listen, but but. The, the way that it's phrased and the word that is used actually in each of these letters appears to be a, a more loving, a more close appeal. Not that that's not loving, but it's a little different. Let me put it like this. this what's happening in these letters is less like my mom saying, Michael Wayne Broderick, you better listen up, which I deserved often. And it's more like when mommy would give me a hug. She would get down and she would give me a hug and a very tender hug, but very firm, and lean in my ear and say, hey, buddy, listen up now. I love you and I want you to remember and then it would be whatever I better remember right that that's that's Jesus listen one thing Jesus wants each church to remember are the rewards that he promises them now When we get into them, you're going to see the rewards in these seven letters are are widely divergent. We've got things like uh, the new name of Jesus, which is really cool. We've got ones that are unspecified, like crowns. We're not exactly sure what that means. And there are some that are possibly just symbolic, like manna from heaven is one of the rewards. The 20th century pastor, Donald Barnhouse, tried to explain this to children in his church. This really is... You ever notice how the, the most clear writing is often when you're trying to write to children? Or are you receiving a letter from children? He did this so well that it actually made sense to me. So, uh, here's what he wrote about rewards in Revelation 2 through 3. What is? He said, God gives rewards to his children for the good things they do. He's writing to kids. Of course, you know, we don't earn our salvation. It's the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. God does not give rewards to unsaved people, but only to his own saved children. If they do things which please him after they're saved, they receive a reward. If they do not do the right things, they lose their reward. We don't know just what these rewards will be. The verses in Revelation 2 through 3 speak of rewards and crowns and shining. Shall we have real gold crowns with precious stones in them? We do not know. This may be, in heaven's language, a symbol of some great blessing which we couldn't even understand in earth's language. But whatever these rewards are, they'll be very wonderful indeed, and we shall be very happy to have them. Now, get this. This is brilliant. The very best thing about these rewards is it will make the Lord Jesus happy if he can give them to us. He wants us to have them, and he'll be even happier than we are when we receive them, close quote. In other words, the rewards that Jesus promises are part of what is during this church age are all about building to last. Listening to Jesus about eternal rewards is a major part of building to last. In fact, fact, we're going to see, this is awesome. We're going to see hold, join, and yield. The, the, those, are the, those are the three main ideas in Acts chapter 2, verse 42, which is our theme verse for this year. Hold, join, and yield are the essential issue for every one of these seven churches in Revelation 2 through 3. You see, some of these churches have stopped holding to scriptural truth. Others of these churches aren't joining well with Christian fellowship, or even worse, they've started joining with evil. And, and many of these churches are not yielded to Jesus' authority. So they're not building to last. How they perform in building to last determines the rewards that Jesus declares for them. And guess what? The same thing is true for us. So our objective for this series, here's what we hope to see God accomplish in us through this study. Read it with me, please, if you would. Our objective is that we build for victory by listening to and obeying Jesus. Way back in that journalism training that I went at, we learned that the five W's and the one H of journalism are best used when the story also is joined by an SW. So what? What changes in life as a result of this story? All right, so we covered the who, what, where, when, why, and how in Jesus' message. Let's add the SW. So what? So what? Two big ideas leap to my mind. First, Jesus is Lord, and he is worthy of worship. Amen? Everything always, one must always keep the context in mind. And the context is that everything unfolds from the mouth and under the gaze of the one John has seen. It's all about Jesus, Messiah, Lord. Which leads to my second takeaway. Those who would build to last should listen, they should heed him, right? So we're going to spend a moment listening to the Lord. I I find, personally, it's easier for me to listen when I kneel. If you wish, you don't have to. If you wish, you may kneel, you may sit, but prepare yourself and let's spend a minute or two listening. Let's heed the Lord Jesus, God, the Son. Listen to him, I am the Alpha and the Omega. The one who is and who was and who is to come. The hair of his head was white as wool, white as snow, and his feet, his eyes were like fiery flame. His feet were like fine bronze as fired in a furnace. His voice was like the sound of cascading waters. He had seven stars in his right hand. A sharp double-edged sword came from his mouth, and his face was shining like the sun at full strength. Listen, remind yourself this is God the Son. And yes, if you're a believer in Jesus, He is your friend. But He is also fully the Almighty and worthy of worship. Heed Him. What are you struggling with? Are you afraid? Good gracious, you certainly probably are. We live in a time that I'm convinced history is going to call this the age of fear. There is more unreasonable fear driving lives than I have ever seen any point in human history I can find. What does Jesus say? Don't be afraid. I'm the first, the last, the living one. I was dead. Look, I'm alive forever and ever. I hold the key of death and Hades. What does he tell you? John says you are in Christ. You're in him. He's alive There's nothing to fear. Nothing. You're worried about your church? You're worried about society? Jesus walks among the seven churches. These are the lampstands. Listen to Him. Lord, I pray especially for any any who are studying with us today that are not believers in Jesus. Good gracious friend, what is holding you back? Is it pride? I mean, I I got a newsflash for you. You're human. You're shot through with sin, just as I am. God's holy. That puts a huge barrier that you cannot bridge. No human can, but God the Son did. He was dead. He died for your sin. And He rose from the dead so that all of us who believe in Him could have everlasting life in Him. If you've never done so, trust Him right now as Savior. Believe on Jesus. We want to pray for you, so if you trusted Christ, make sure you indicate that on your, your uh, prayer card that's there in the bulletin. Lord, I pray for all these Christians, new and old. I pray that we will appreciate the opportunity to listen to you, to worship you. I I see the ushers coming for the offering, and it reminds me that a huge part of my, my worship of you is my offering, giving to you your money for the use of your work. It's an awesome way to worship you, and I praise you for it. And I pray that as I do so, I will listen. In Jesus' name, amen.